regardless of your assessment of New Year's resolutions, I know there's different takes on New Year's resolutions, the start of a new year, and yes, a new decade, reminds us that time is passing away. We have one less year and one less decade on earth, and we should focus more on the things that matter most of all. We should examine our lives in light of the high calling that we have as followers of Christ and ask ourselves how we can grow so that we can make an eternal difference in the lives of others. And I think of all the changes that are possible for this upcoming year, all the resolutions that we might make, I think spiritual growth should always be at the top of the list. Today we begin a new series on Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, found in Matthew chapters 5 to 7. I've wanted to preach through this passage for some time um, in the just you know recent memory here, but it was interesting how it just sort of happened to fall out to begin this at the beginning of the new year. And as I thought about it, I think it is a great time to explore this very challenging passage, which is a clear, perhaps the clearest summation of the message of Christ. It's a great message for a new year. The famous theologian Augustine said about the Sermon on the Mount that it is the perfect measure of the Christian life. Uh, one modern writer says, quote, in the history of Christian thought, indeed in the history of those observing Christianity, the Sermon on the Mount has been considered an epitome of the teaching of Jesus and therefore for many the essence of Christianity. God wants us to be blessed. And perhaps there is no capacity, no, excuse me, no passage that has the capacity to do that like the Sermon on the, the Mount. And my prayer is that God will use these next few months to transform many lives for his glory. If you will faithfully attend these next few months, learn what is being taught, apply it to your lives, you will grow. And that's why we're here, right? We are here to be changed and transformed by the power of the gospel. And the Sermon on the Mount is absolutely marvelous to do so. So, before diving into the sermon itself, so that we might have kind of a better appreciation of it, let me give a little background information about the Sermon on the Mount. Here are three points about the sermon. First thing I want you guys to understand is the impact of the sermon. This sermon has left a remarkable imprint on the church, and rightfully so. It is the longest recorded teaching that we have of Jesus. And he, of course, is the greatest preacher ever. It contains many famous statements. I'm sure that you'll recognize some, if not all, of these things, these following statements. Beatitudes like, blessed are the peacemakers. Heard that before? You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
when you give to the needy. Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Do not be anxious about anything. Any, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Heard of these so far? Judge not that you not be judged. Here's another one. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. We often call that the golden rule, right? One more, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. All of those statements are found in the Sermon on the Mount. And that's not all. The most famous prayer that has ever been uttered is the Lord's Prayer, Jesus' model prayer for us. That's also found in the Sermon on the Mount. These are some of the most famous, powerful statements that have ever been uttered and not only have impacted the church, but have impacted the world. But going back to the church, you see these references to the Sermon on the Mount already in the writings of Peter and Paul and, and, and James that so soon after these things were, were spoken, they already were being circulated in the church because they saw how significant it was. When the apostles died at the end of the first century, and when you start from, say, the end of the first century and go to about the fourth century, did you know that the Sermon on the Mount is by far the most quoted passage of all of the New Testament? People look to it to understand the message of Jesus. And since that time, Countless books and sermons have been devoted to the Sermon on the Mount. People recognize that there's something just utterly remarkable about this passage. U.S. President Harry Truman once said, I do not believe there is a problem in this country or the world today which could not be settled if approached through the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. But the impact of this sermon, I don't believe, has been fully felt in the church. Why is that? Well, I think a big problem is that false interpretations have hindered the impact of the Sermon on the Mount. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, in the early church, most Bible commentators and interpreters rightly understood that the Sermon on the Mount is meant for the entire church to live out and to display. But then when you move into the Middle Ages, the famous uh, second or 12th century theologian Thomas Aquinas popularized the view that there are actually two types of commandments. There are what he called precepts, which every Christian is obligated to keep, and there are counsels, what he calls counsels, that is meant for the spiritual elite, in other words, if you want to be really kind of beyond that, then you should try to keep those things. But when you come to the Sermon on the Mount, not all of it is for the Christian church. There's maybe segments of it. 
And so in other words, people started realizing we can't really keep the Sermon on the Mount unless we give up a normal life and then go live a monastic life. So the Sermon on the Mount's impact was hindered. When the Protestant Reformation occurred, they rejected that interpretation, and they realized that it was for all of the church. But even within Protestant Reformation thinkers, they hindered the impact of the sermon. For example, Martin Luther thought that the standard of the sermon was so high and so lofty that it was impossible to keep, and that you fell short and needed God's grace. Now, on one hand, he was right to recognize that in and of ourselves, we do need God's grace. But he cast the Sermon on the Mount in such a negative light that it lost its powerful, positive impact on the church. Other groups were known as the Anabaptists, from which the Amish and the Mennonites have sprung. They interpreted the Sermon on the Mount in an incredibly wooden and literal fashion in some of those commands. And so, for example, they advocated complete pacifism in all ways, okay? And they also said that you shouldn't ever take an oath, even in a courtroom setting. This and other ways kind of challenged the way people saw the Sermon on the Mount. And for some of them, they thought if you were to actually keep the Sermon on the Mount, you basically had to withdraw from society to keep it which goes exactly against what Jesus was telling us to do, to be the salt and light of the world, not to withdraw from society, but to be a light for society. Do you see the difference? We'll get to why they misinterpreted that when we come to some of those passages. Another extreme was the school of thought known as classical dispensationalism popularized by the Schofield Reference Bible. Ever heard of the Schofield Reference Bible? The most popular study Bible that has probably ever existed. Classic dispensationalism believed that Jesus' audience, when he spoke these words, was to a Jewish audience during the millennial kingdom, but it had no impact on the church at all. Now, more modern-day dispensationalists have rightly rejected that interpretation. But again, this was the most popular study Bible, made a huge impact on the church. And I think hindered the impact of the sermon. So some of these false interpretations have impacted the power of the Sermon on the Mount. And that leads to my second point, the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. What is the purpose, right? Why did Jesus utter these words? Well, to put it simply, Jesus describes the character and the conduct of the followers of Christ. At the heart of the sermon, Jesus describes the righteousness that he expects from his people. Righteousness is not an option for a follower of Jesus Christ, but a requirement. And indeed, as we're going to see when we go through this, Jesus expects our righteousness to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees of his day who were known for their religious zeal. Remember the parable of the sower where Jesus tells about a man who went out and sowed seeds on four different types of soil? 
only the fourth soil actually bore fruit, that represented true Christians. Jesus says that that type of soil will produce 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold fruit. And that day, a bumper crop was 30-fold. Jesus was saying, if you are a follower of me, you will bear abundant spiritual fruit. You will share a bumper crop. Not just those who go off and start a monastic order. Not just for, say, leadership in the church or for special Christians. But this is meant for everyone. God expects a spiritual bumper crop from all Christians. Now, if that sounds daunting, be encouraged that God has given us the power to carry this out by the Holy Spirit. That is why our righteousness can exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. Because our effort is not just mere human effort, but it is supernatural effort. By the way, when I preach through this material, just fair warning, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm not going to sugarcoat it because I could not be faithful to what Jesus has taught here in these verses and somehow try to numb and hinder the power of these words. So if you didn't get a pair of steel-tipped boots under the Christmas tree, you might want to get some as you prepare these next couple of months as we go through this passage. So we've seen the impact of the Sermon on the Mount, the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount, and lastly, just briefly here, the structure of the Sermon on the Mount. It's not just a collection of teachings about various topics that really don't have a clear structure to it. I've read the Sermon on the Mount many times through the years, but this past week was really helpful to appreciate the real flow and logic and structure that Jesus has put together with this Sermon on the Mount. And in your bulletin, you actually have this in front of you. And I want you to take a second and just look at it so you know where we're going to be going for these next few months and can follow along and hopefully read along with us because I'm telling you, you will get a lot more out of the messages if you have read these things, processed them throughout the week, and then come in on Sunday morning. But as you see there, there's a helpful structure that I, I gleaned from a, a Bible commentator named Charles Quarles in his book, revised it a little bit. But you see how there's an introduction, there's the main body of the sermon there, and then there's the conclusion in chapter 7. And also put down a little schedule for you. Uh, I'm not going to promise that I will stick to it. You know, sometimes things change in your preparation. But it gives you a rough idea of, Adam said amen. <laughs> I, I shift things around on him sometimes, last minute. But anyway, that gives you an idea of where we're going to be going for these next 13 messages. By the way, what you have in Matthew is probably a summary of Jesus' actual sermon. Uh, if you sit down and read it out loud, which I did and I timed myself, it's about exactly 10 minutes long. I think this is a summary of Jesus' message, which was probably much longer. You. I think it was very common in those days to give a short, condensed summary of a longer message. And I think that's what we have here with Jesus, uh, Matthew's recording of Jesus' sermon. He gives kind of the inspired summary of the key points we're to take away. So we've seen the impact, the purpose, and the structure of the sermon. Now that we've said all that, let's dive in Matthew chapter 5, page 809, if you're using one of the Bibles in front of you. 
And let's look for a, a few moments here at the setting of the sermon, the setting of the sermon. Now, in Matthew's gospel, he's just begun, Jesus had just begun his ministry um, and was incredibly popular. The crowds were flocking to him. He was performing miracles. He was teaching with great authority. And so that sets the stage for chapter 5, and it begins with these words in verse 1. It says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So Jesus went up on the mountain. That's why it's called the Sermon on the Mount. He spoke while he was on a mountain. Don't necessarily have in your mind that he was hanging out on the very top of a peak, yelling down to a crowd. Probably was a flat area in the mountain peaks there that he spoke. And this, that is why it's called the Sermon on the Mount. Augustine was probably the first to coin that phrase, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew doesn't identify the exact mountain. Uh, the traditional location is a mountain in, near uh, Ca uh, Capernaum, which is called Mount Aramis. Here are a couple of pictures. I don't know if we got those loaded in or not. But a couple of pictures of, that's kind of a, a view from the top of the mountain there. And this is what it would look like sitting down below, looking up from the bottom. Again, if that's where he actually spoke, that's what it would look like. Now, the setting is brief that I just read to you there. But don't skip past it because it has a lot of powerful imagery. You say, what's, what's so important about that one little sentence? Well, Jesus going up the mountain, does that bring anything to mind? It should because it brings up the imagery of Moses when he went up the mountain and received the Ten Commandments from the Lord. In fact, throughout Mo Matthew's gospel, he tries to highlight Jesus and Moses and shows that Jesus is now the new Moses, the greater Moses who has come on the scene. And this new Moses is going to bring deliverance for God's people, not a political deliverance like, like Moses did from the nation of Egypt, but he's going to bring a spiritual deliverance as people are delivered from sin, an even greater enemy than Egypt or Rome. So here in this passage, Moses instructed his people about life under the Mosaic Covenant. Jesus goes up on the mountain and instructs his people about life under the New Covenant. He also pointed out, Matthew, in that, in that verse there, that his disciples came to him. So who were the disciples? Well, certainly it included the 12 who were known as the apostles. And the word disciple also meant just other people who were interested in following Jesus. And there was a wide spectrum of people, some very committed, uh, some people maybe, you know, kind of touch, dipping their feet in the water, so to speak. So there was these disciples with varying levels of commitment. And also there were onlookers. If you go all the way to the end of chapter 7, it says, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. So I think the, the best we could probably imagine in our mind's eye is imagining Jesus sitting down there with a circle of very devoted followers, as well as a, a large crowd of people standing around. Some of them may be interested, maybe some of them wondering, is he going to you know, feed 5,000 soon, or my stomach's getting hungry or whatever. Varying levels of interest, but they all were coming up to Jesus, and he sat down, as was the common position of rabbis in his day, to teach the crowds. Now, Jesus begins his sermon with what are 
often called the Beatitudes. You ever heard of that before, Beatitudes? What does that word mean? Well, it actually, the word Beatitude comes from the Latin word Beatus, which meant blessed or happy. And as you see there in Matthew 5, there's a string of these statements of blessed is this and blessed is that and so forth. These Beatitudes really form the core of his introduction of his sermon. What does it mean to say that a person is blessed? Jesus is saying that that person is blessed by God. It is a divine blessing. It is a display of, of favor and anointing from God. These Beatitudes characterize all of God's people. Get that. I want you to make sure you heard that. That isn't just special segments. But these are characteristics of God's people who receive a blessing. And so with each beatitude, there's a different characteristic and then a particular blessing. For example, that first beatitude, if you look down in verse 3, says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the characteristic of God's people is that we should be poor in spirit. Not just certain of us. But all of us should be poor in spirit. And the blessing we receive is the kingdom of heaven. And again, you see a very interesting connection to Moses. Right before Moses died, his last recorded words, and we know Moses spoke a lot, didn't he? His last recorded words to the nation of Israel was a blessing. It says in Deuteronomy 33:29, happy or blessed, are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your health and the sword of your triumph? So now Jesus comes along as the new and the greater Moses. He takes the idea of blessing and applies it to his new covenant people. And the, you see all that. That is so powerful. And we're going to see how the Sermon on the Mount is not just remarkably practical in how we live our lives, but Jesus is coming along and he's bringing to fruition and completion and fulfillment all of these things and, and streams of the, of the Messianic promises and Old Testament uh, covenants all coming to pass in Jesus' life. All right, let's look at this first beatitude. We're going to close with this. just wanted to cover one today so we get a flavor of it. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean to be poor in spirit? The word poor was used to describe someone who had nothing. Not just maybe a little bit, but this was someone who had nothing. They were often crippled or had some type of incapacity where they could not work. They depended upon others to survive. They often, of course, would beg. So what does it mean when Jesus comes along and he says that you must be poor in spirit? Charles Quarles says that the phrase, quote, describes someone who is keenly aware that he is spiritually destitute and must rely entirely on the grace of God for salvation. So to be poor in spirit 
does not mean that you view yourself as worthless. No. The Bible says you're made in the image of God, so that is untrue. It does not mean to be poor in spirit that you are a downcast person, a Debbie Downer who's always negative about the world. No. That's not what it means. It's not someone who's downcast. You can actually be an incredibly joyful person, but yet be poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit means that you recognize that you are spiritually broken and bankrupt. You possess no self-righteousness and need forgiveness of sin in order to be right with God. You need God to extend you grace. You cannot earn your salvation by somehow thinking that your good outweighs your bad. I cannot emphasize enough the importance of Jesus' words here because, listen to this, the human default mode is not to be poor in spirit. Right? We are proud and justify ourselves. I'm a good person, right? If someone asks you, why would you go to heaven or... What makes you right with God? I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I, I do a lot of good stuff. I help people. I've never done anything really bad before. I'm better than the guy who lives next to me or my coworker, or whatever, right? We, we compare ourselves to other people. We're very good at recognizing the sin of others. We got 20-20 vision when it comes to others. But when it comes to ourselves, we don't see things quite so well. The heart can be incredibly resistant. To follow Christ, though, we must be broken and contrite. Here's a great example. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 18, page 877, if you're using one of the Bibles in front of you. Jesus tells a parable about a tax collector who were regarded as the scum of society because they were traitors to their Jewish brethren collecting money for the Roman Empire and a Pharisee who was regarded by himself as self-righteous and a holy person. So turn there and pick up in verse 9. Let's read this parable that Jesus tells. says there, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Had kind of a nice little resume, didn't he? But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. 
point Jesus is trying to make here is that each of us is like the Pharisee. Maybe not that extreme, but when it comes to why would you be right with God? Why would you go to heaven? We point to ourselves, don't we? We do this and we do that or we avoid doing this. We justify ourselves. The, t- the tax collector, on the other hand, just simply lowered his eyes and said, God, have mercy on me because I am a sinner. He was poor in spirit. And we have to have a clear understanding of our true condition. Because if we don't, you will never see the need for Christ if you're clinging to your pride. In other words, if someone started asking you those questions and your first reaction was, well, I do this and I do that and I don't do this and I don't do that, you're not poor in spirit. You are proud in spirit. And so when you hear these words, you might be perhaps even hearing them now, and what I'm saying to you just sounds irrelevant to you or boring to you, and you're not really interested because you've not seen that your pride is hindering you from the kingdom of heaven. You have to be poor in spirit. That is the only way into the kingdom of heaven. There's no transformation without brokenness. So let me ask you, have you ever come to that place of being poor in spirit, asking God for forgiveness and trusting Christ as the way to salvation? That is what it boils down. To be poor in spirit, we have to be a follower of Christ, we have to be a poor in spirit. Conversion, becoming a Christian, requires us to be poor in spirit. But here's one other thing, very important. To continue to follow in Christ, we have to be poor in spirit. You say, why is that? The power of sin is broken when a person becomes a Christian. That's what the Bible declares, and that's why we celebrate. But the presence of sin remains, doesn't it? And so for the rest of your life, you will continue to struggle with apathy and and pride and so forth. No matter how much we grow in the Christian life, there are always, it's like peeling an onion. There's always another layer of sin that God can show you if you're interested in learning about it. Robert Murray McShane was a famous Scottish pastor, very gifted, remarkably used by God, and a man really committed to personal holiness. One time a parishioner congratulated him on his godliness. You know what he said to her? He said, quote, Madam, if you could see in my heart, you would spit in my face. How could he be a pastor? How He's this godly man. No, he honestly recognized what was in his heart. I think if we were all honest, that would be the case for all of us. You're not sinless. You recognize that you need the grace of God to continue to battle this and to be poor in spirit. And that if you're going to grow, like, man, we're hoping that we will grow in these next few months as we dive into the Sermon on the Mount. But if we're going to grow, it's not because we kind of, you know, well, I'm going to take this serious. This is all about me. This is turning over a new leaf. This isn't all about us. This is about leaning and trusting in the Lord to grow us. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. 
for apart from me you can do nothing. So Jesus' words here, they're tough, aren't they? But they are true. And all of the rest of the Beatitudes, and probably you could say all of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, starts with this very first Beatitude of being poor in spirit, coming, dependent, trusting in God to do a work in your life, leaning on Him and His power and His truth, not our own self-effort. So for those who are poor in spirit, what is their blessing? We already kind of, you know, let the cat out of the bag there, but they shall receive the kingdom of heaven. Now, Matthew uses that phrase a lot, basically synonymous with kingdom of God. What does that mean? The kingdom of heaven is the kingdom that Christ inaugurated when he came to this world. It's the redemptive mission. And so people who trust Christ, they enter into that kingdom and enjoy all the benefits of knowing God, forgiveness of sin, peace with God, the promise of eternal life, a new heart that wants to love people like we've never loved them before because we see that they're made in His image and we want to bless and serve them. So we enter into this kingdom now. This isn't just in the future, but it's now. And there's also a future aspect, though, to the kingdom when Christ returns and gives resurrection bodies to all of His followers so that you will live forever in a sinless, glorified body. Amen to that. And then you will have a resurrected body living here on this new creation that Christ is going to establish. So this kingdom is now and it's not yet. Isn't this remarkable? What a reality. The kingdom of heaven is going to be received by the proud and the mighty? No. The poor in spirit. The great irony whole world upside down. And he's just beginning. There's a whole lot more. So I hope and pray that each one of us will make an effort to be here and learn from the greatest sermon ever preached. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are truly awed and challenged just by these short few sentences that we've read, and we know there's so much waiting for us in the days ahead as we dive into the Sermon on the Mount. We thank you for these precious and, tr and truthful words that truly have shaped so many people throughout the ages, and we want them to shape us. And Lord, as we said in the message, Lord, we just pray that if perhaps pride is a barrier hindering from someone entering into the kingdom of heaven today, God, that you might show them that they are proud in their spirit and you want them to be poor. To recognize that, Lord, that when we come to you this way, that's actually the only way that we can find eternal life and find who we are in you and know your love for us. God, we pray that you would stir and stoke a fire in each one of our hearts to truly grow and become like your son, Jesus Christ, whom you have chosen to be like. God, may we also remember that whatever we receive, however we grow, it's all because of your grace and your grace alone. 
So, Lord, we pray that you would be with us in these days ahead. Mold us and shape us into the church you want us to be, that we truly would be the salt and light of the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.